when George manages to repeat the word doom six times in a single sentence at the start of a character's chapter, you do start to think, maybe he's not long for this world. Tormund also says that uh, this horn of Jormund, this uh, massive thing that could have brought down the wall and Jemba Melisandre burned it, he's saying that was a farce and actually it wasn't. It was just some giant horn they found. Yet another reverse from George here. Yeah, we are getting to the stage now where um, he's so keen on the resurrection thing. Even the props are getting resurrected. (laughs) Hello and welcome to part 12 of Shark Liver Oil's forensic look at a dance with dragons. I'm Matt. I'm Dave, hello. It's the Dirty Dozen, Dave, part 12. Yes. I don't think we've ever had a part 12 before. Have we not? I, th- I feel like a storm of swords definitely stuck around longer longer than um, we were expecting it to. I feel like yeah, actually, we, we definitely could have been. I think we may have gone the distance there, but this is that that was a, that was a different kettle of fish. That was back in them halcyon days when we were still inside the first trilogy of books, and we understood what was going on. Whereas now, <laughs> now we're we're adrift on a seemingly endless sea of what happened in the last three volumes. Hang on, let me check. Well. Well, without without going anywhere near a wiki of ice and fire as well, by the way, on my part. Yeah. I'd like to make it clear, I've maintained my chastity in that area. Well, maybe this is the episode where we catch sight of land. So we, we're going from a chapter about John, which begins, that night he dreamed of wildlings, as far as a chapter about Cersei, which begins uh, when she was fine, the, the, the last night of her imprisonment, something like that. So uh, it's about 70 pages. If you want the rough page numbers, shuffle, shuffle, books through book. It is uh, from page something like roughly in mind seven six nine to eight four nine. Uh, we've got another two. Oh no, another one after this. No, another two. <laughs> another, another two episodes after this to round off the book. So we are getting towards the the end of it now, mm. which you may have mixed feelings about. Um, but- <laughs> <laughs> no, I am. I'm excited, but only because it's been a very long journey, and I have enjoyed it very much. And I'm yeah. looking forward to being able to look back over the whole thing. Yeah. Um, yeah. But it's. I'm not like. I, I may have sounded then like I'm trudging along. Uh, oh God, George, what have you done now? I am. I, though I may occasionally sound otherwise, I am not, in fact, a sulky teenager about this. I will be sorry to see it go. Yeah, we still enjoy the book, don't we? Um, and yeah, I'd yeah. say this is this is a um, so far somewhat return to form after Feast for Crows. Um, although at the moment I still don't think it's hit the heights of the uh, of Storm of Swords and uh, uh, Clash of Kings. But yeah, no, anyway, I agree with that. But so but there's there's book still to come, Matt. We could be looking at a glorious crescendo here. Well, the, the, yeah. Think so. <laughs> Fucking hell! Fill me with confidence. There, you've, you you've read it before, it? and I haven't. I suggest <laughs> that it's going to end really well, and you're like, yeah, yeah. yeah see how it goes, eh? See, see how we get along. Um, yeah, no, 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 no promises I'm, either way. I'm not questioning the quality of it. I'm questioning just when is it going to get done because um, I've, we've been waiting quite a while for this next. Oh, book, the series. Yeah, shit. No, yeah. I was talking about the book. Uh, Don't yeah. I've, I'm now. I'm, I now feel about the completion of the Song of Ice and Fire cycle as I do about England ever winning the World Cup ever again. <laughs> I, I'm not expecting it ever to happen, so I can't possibly be disappointed by it. 
Yeah, you got some vague feeling that it might happen at some point in the future, but yeah. you're probably not going to live to see it. <laughs> I, I admit that it's a credible, it's a credible expectation. You know, it is a reasonable belief. I just don't think it's going to happen. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well let's let's get into the part we have we, we have got to so far, and this is um, the first chapter for today is John. So he's having this freaky, freaky dream about wildlings. He's basically standing on the top of the wall dealing out some death to people who are already dead. Um, and so, so it's wildlings climbing up the wall who he kills, and then it's sort of former comrades and, you know, everyone from Egret to um, that guy, Th- Corin Half Halfhand, who he's, he's sending back down to the death. Uh, weird dream. Yeah. Yeah, a bit trippy. And um, I, I don't know how much I'm allowed to talk about the TV series, but... I, I definitely this. I've been. I'm trying my hardest to ignore the the kind of Jon Snow. My knowledge of what happened in the TV series because fuck knows what's going to happen in the book, as yeah. we know. Um, and um, but there was definitely a sense of foreboding over this. You know, when 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 George manages to repeat the word doom six times in a single sentence at the start of the <laughs> character's chapter, you do start to think maybe he's not long for this world. Well. Um... Yeah, I think it's definitely give you the impression of, of how alone he feels at the moment. Um, the mm. fact that he's uh, the whole point of that dream, I think. He has yeah. breakfast with Dolores Ed, who's on a visit from that castle, castle wildling or castle spearwife, mm. as we've christened it. Um, <laughs> him and I and Emmett and still the spearwives. Yeah. He's come over for a for a visit and yeah. um, John bit of man time, bit of yeah, lads only. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, and then the wildlings arrive, this massive group of them led by Tormund. They're coming through mm. the wall now. Yeah. And uh, they open the gates. Uh, the hostages come through first. I think it's quite interesting that a couple of the uh, hostages are girls dressed up as boys. And John says, no, 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 we've got to have just guys. And Tormund sort of twigs fairly quickly that this is because um, a lot of sort of Night's Watchmen wouldn't necessarily respect um sort of anything about girl well let's be let's let's not put it as delicate that they'd, they'd get raped basically yeah. so um yeah. so yeah he said but i thought it was interesting that uh Tom's reaction is like so almost like shaking his head going what are you lot like as if you know as in that wouldn't really yeah. happen with us wildling yeah. and savage as we are we wouldn't do that yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? Is that the wildlings are um, impolite and often very merciless, but you know that's that's the worldview in which their morals exist, and they do have a kind of moral code. Whereas yeah. I think the problem with the Night's Watch is that it exists to be the kind of moral cesspit of a broader society, which is, as we know, terrible at paying attention to its own moral standards anyway. But yeah. It no in its in its own head, the Night's Watch is a place where morality can't apply, in a sense. Um, you know, there's only violence or the threat of violence. So yeah. it's not at all not at all surprising um, that um, you know that John ha- John has has to say, look, we are the people who've been lording it over you for centuries on the top of this 700 foot high wall of ice, and your women are not safe here. Yeah, and I think it's to his credit, really, that he doesn't try and pretend that that's somehow morally defensible. Because I bet you a million, there's a lot of people in Westeros who would. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Uh, Tormund also says that uh, this horn of Jormund, this uh, massive thing that 
could have brought down the wall, and Jemba Melisandre burned it re- um, a while back. Yeah. He's saying that was a farce, and actually it wasn't. And it was just some giant horn they found um, uh, in yeah, some well, giant's grave. All right. Uh, what, uh, on the one hand, cool. You know, interesting plot device, which was destroyed off screen, if you like. Um, so, And that irritated me, so it's back. But yet, yet another reverse from George here. Do you, think, do you think that he sits down and plans them all out? Or does he just say one thing's happened and then decide he needs it not to have happened and just go, oh, that was nonsense, by the way? Like, is he purposefully yanking me around? Am I supposed to perceive some sort of authorial intent in this? Or yeah. is he just making it up as he goes along? Yeah, we are getting to the stage now where um, he's so keen on the resurrection thing. Even, <laughs> even, even, even the props are getting resurrected. <laughs> he's even resurrecting the objects. <laughs> Deary me. Uh, Although that yeah. does raise the rather marvellous idea that the Horn of Jorn will appear later on as a fourth different type of zombie in the world of the Song of Ice and Fire. Just sort of like with little new little undead legs sprouted on it, just kind of like wandering across the place, making kind of strangely amplified undead moans. Kind of... <laughs> Yeah, I think I think he's just kind of hedging his bets here, George Martin, because sometimes he, he's he's always said um, <clears throat> whenever he, he talks about the books that he's more he's a he's a gardener rather than an architect, so he just sort of starts writing and sees what happens rather yeah. than plans it all like very very sort of specifically. No, that's an elegant phrase. I quite like that. Yeah. Yeah, um, but I think with this it might be a case because because John thinks about it and thinks well either that's true and it wasn't the horn or. Tormund sort of having me on and we have burned it and he just doesn't want to admit it and it could yeah. easily be either now couldn't it so he just sort of George Martin's opened the door there so he can basically do what he wants with that yeah um, yeah well and there's a there is a thing that happens later in this section which is which has kind of piqued my interest there so maybe he did it mm. on purpose instead of yeah instead of as a gardener discovering that the privet hedge he thought he'd burned last winter is in fact alive and well on the other side of the house and has reached a height of 15 feet. <laughs> yeah, there's the twist. So, um, so so it takes all day, this, getting these wildlings through the gate, because it's, obviously it's a small gate and it's a large number of wildlings. Um, and you can feel as sort of afternoon draws on and dusk sets in, this sort of sense of fear around as people are trying to get through before nightfall yeah. because the sort of the walkers aren't far away. Yeah. Um, the last the last of the rear guard come through and the last guy to go through is this skin changer called Borok and he's got this giant <laughs> boar and I do mean giant, it's like bigger than a direwolf. It's this yeah. massive sort of pig thing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Which is cool. Yeah. The kind of thing where a foolish man, a foolhardy man would go right up to it and go Bacon Sandwiches and just see what happened. <laughs> I'm sure one or two of the uh, nice watchmen, especially the guys who control the stores, the dwindling stores of food, will take a look at that boar and think, "Yeah, there is a lot of bacon to be had on that." Yeah, well, it, well, which is, which will be entertaining, even if it is not ultimately nourishing. But actually, this reminds me of a story I heard once. Um, somebody I know was in um, sort of Florida. Um, but very rural Florida, sort of, kind of on on the crick, if you like. Yeah. Um, back in the middle of nowhere, and one of the things they do is they hunt sort of wild pigs. And um, uh, because these things have been known to go for animals which are, you know, owned by people, they'll often catch them and castrate them. Um, so as you can imagine, catching Gosh. and castrating an angry uh, a pig. 
the pig may start off placid, but it ends up pretty fucking angry. And um, <laughs> I'm gonna so be, why are they doing this? What to send a message to the other pigs? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's the anti-pig mafia of the Florida backwaters map. You know, heard this coming this winter from HBO. No, um, it's um, they, it's because they they attack sort of livestock and stuff, or you know. <laughs> Dogs and houses and children and shit. Because they're, they're just like wild, like roaming around the place. What do you mean and, by attack? Um, well, they've got the same as this boar, they've got these huge tusks on. Okay, right. right. I'm just trying to draw the connection between the castration and the attack. I thought you meant like they jump on a cow and starve and a go. <laughs> well, I mean, yeah, they, they, attack, pigs. they attack people's lives. But so that you castrate them so that they don't have kids, so that there aren't, you know, okay, one, right. one angry boar mofo doesn't turn into 12 <laughs> young angry boar mofos anyway this- <laughs> I, just had this, I just had this image of these ridiculously ridiculously horny pigs running around just jumping on the first animal they see <laughs> yeah, and just, that's a shagging stop. with malice aforethought <laughs> no 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 they castrate them so that there will not be more of them and um Apparently, it's a sight to see when they do because what they do is they they like catch the thing in a trap and yeah. sort of um uh sort of you know inject it with whatever I think it's asleep and then they castrate it and then they 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 take it back out to where they found it and let it yeah. go but they let it go by putting it under a box and then lifting the box up and then running like fuck right <laughs> um. So, <laughs> um so, I mean, if we have listeners in Florida or indeed anybody with more experience of livestock than me, which is to say, literally, if you've been near a cow, you've got more experience of livestock than I have. I could be wrong. So please email in and tell me if I'm finished. <laughs> um, but as I understand what it is, is you just like overt- overturn the box, let it out. All your mates are already in the pickup truck with the engine going, right? And you open up the box and you just sprint for the flatbread. Log yourself <laughs> in there. Go, go, go. <laughs> In the absence, then, of a proper pickup truck, um, you know, and indeed animal anaesthetic, um, I I do wonder how this is going to go down at Castle Black and how badly it's going to kick off there. Yeah. You know? It's not to be messed with, that kind of uh, animal, is it? It's not. Well, no, particularly not when it could be inhabited by the spirit of a human who's got all sorts of very human reasons to despise you and want to gut you with its tusks. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Like, I, I like the way they save the best for last as well. Um, you know, as, as if there's just a, one tiny flick of the tail of this, you know, this huge winding snake of an army yeah. that they've been scared of for centuries. And they're like, they send through the hostages and the boys and the girls and the kids. And they're talking about how bad it is, you know. And they're essentially living daily with the White Walkers. And, um, you know, people are getting picked off every time. And... um uh, and everybody gets through, and it's like, all right, that's done. What the fuck is that? <laughs> it's a pig the size of a combi van turns up. And I just imagine the pig just sort of looking at him, like with the spirit of whatever it is, the skin changer, and just kind of going, <clears throat> and then just going, and goes like, <laughs> like, you know, the way you nod at a bouncer on the way in. Like, oh, cheers, mate. Cheers, mate. Yeah, yeah cheers. <laughs> cheers. Yeah. Yeah, the boars were in sick boars were in four train of training. <laughs> <laughs> you can't go in. <laughs> it's got, it's got, 
it's got his rock ports on. <laughs> Sovereign okay. on each trotter. Anyway, sorry. <laughs> yeah, so that's the ball. Um, and if things weren't bad enough, uh, John gets this letter from Hard Home from Cotter Pike uh, via the Maester. Uh, it's not good. They've lost six of their ships already. Uh, one of them, um, another one, was attacked by wildlings um, who were trying to save, um, and they killed a lot of them trying to keep the keep the ship afloat. It looks like uh, the problem is these uh, these ships have turned up after those ships turned up, which just sort of got a lot of women and children and took them off to be slaves. So... Um, mm. So the, uh, there's obviously an issue there with trust. And at the same yeah. time, he writes of dead things in the water and dead things in the wood. Um, yeah. So it sounds like it's, it's... And he says, send help by land. So yeah. um, Don't send them by like sea, he's... game over. I mean, yeah. well, first of all, Swimming Zombies. There's yeah. a sci-fi original movie waiting to happen, and no mistake. <laughs> coming coming to you soon from the makers of Sharknado. Um. But also, um, I thought this was a really good way. There were two bits of this. One, I was kind of disappointed that, that, you know, Hard Home was such an enormous set piece of the TV series, and it was a great sequence as well. Like, it yeah. was a very dramatic and powerful way of presenting the sort of ascendancy of the White Walkers, as almost as like a military or political force, not just as a fairy tale or as this creepy, you know, out-to-fuck-you-up sort of force. Yeah. But... As you know, a, you know a force with a king and a commander who can just own you. You know, yeah. Um, and it's kind of sad that that's not part of the book. It would seem. I don't know what we're going to get in the future, but if this is the chapter where we where hard home has already happened, then it seems we're not going to get that battle scene. That's kind of sad. Um, but the flip side of it is, I actually thought it was a great advert for how the book can tie together two very disparate pieces of experience and kind of give you a sense of a broader world which TV yeah. actually quite struggles to do. So because it ties to all the stuff that Tormund's saying as they're coming through the wall, and he's kind of saying, you know, you don't understand what it's like. You know, you, you now believe the White Walkers are real. You didn't for centuries, and now you believe they're real. So, you know, well, welcome to the club. But um, to you, they're still, you know, they're still only a danger to the rangers you choose to send out. To us, they've been eating us at night for months and years, you know. Yeah. And um, and he says that, and then you flip all the way over to getting a crow from, you know, from the sea, mind you. And we're in the middle of a continent here. It's a long way away. Yeah. And um, saying, these things are in the water. These things are on the ship. We've lost 50% of our, of our force, you know. Send help. Yeah. For fuck's sake, don't go in the water. Um, yeah. Uh, so I thought that was a very powerful piece of sort of world sketching. Even though it does raise the possibility, doesn't it? If, if they're in the water... No wall of ice in the water, is there? So is it possible that the shocking opening scene of the Winds of Winter is a bunch of, like, white walkers, whites, ice beasts, others, turning up in King's Landing, just as if on a holiday, sort of swaggering <laughs> through. All right, no, no, we swam it, actually. Yeah, yeah, fucked a lot of you. Didn't think of that, <laughs> did you? <laughs> anyway, we'll have this and this and this and this and this. By the way, you're a zombie now. Yeah. Yeah, would be would be quite a twist. Yeah, exactly. Um, the, the the next chapter is the discarded knight. It's a barristan. Hey, I'm still standing. Yeah, <laughs> not, yeah, not, yeah. Not only is he still standing, he's now got his own POV chapter. So he's uh-huh. he's, he's rising up the ranks, Dave. I did, and and you love it, even though we should know by now not to trust George with this as far as we can throw the bastard. <laughs> but we'll see, yeah. we'll see. He's rolled the dice. 
and hit a six like four <laughs> chapters in a row now. So who can say? So, uh, so, so Bersin, yeah, there's quite a little nice character beat where um, they describe his living quarters and it's really, really almost like a monk, really simple. Apart from yeah. he's got this little carving of the warrior, um, sort of the part of the seven that he worships uh, to mm. sort of give him comfort. Mm. Um, the the population seems to be getting pretty unruly under Hisdar. Um, there's this scene at the court where uh, Hisdar's trying to sort of do the Daenerys thing day to day. And there's a mm. lot of people just kicking off saying, where is she? You know, you're not the real, almost saying you're not the real leader and all this. Yeah. Um, and it's yeah. just a... There's, there is a an entire example. country, sorry. I was going to say, it's, it's an example of the fact that you kind of needed them both. It's like we said in the last in the, uh, in the last podcast, mm-hmm. how, why, from his dad's point of view, it would have been a bit stupid to kill Daenerys. Um, yes. even it looks like that's what he's yeah. tried to do. Because he's essential to keep the sort of the masters and the harpies on side but she's still essential to keep the sort of ex-slave part of the city on side and without yeah. her it's difficult to control yeah, and without her the sort of public image of, I mean, so ridiculous these phrases like public image when you're dealing with a medieval style fantasy with dragons in it but the, <laughs> they're not handling the pr terribly well are they like Without her, nobody likes his dad. Like he's powerful because he's got all of the all of the patricians and that on side who hold the gateways of power. But this is an entire city full of people who have been addressing this woman as mother for months, yeah. and they go away. And it is it's you're not my real dad. You know, it's that it, yeah. it's that thing. And and you know, you really feel the sort of angst of it on on the part of the people who are coming in. You know, where previously. Where previously, kind of, Daenerys has sat on a fairly sort of, um, fairly kind of austere bench in order to kind of hold court and be closer to her people. And so she's still a queen. She still gets all hail Daenerys, holder of the most titles, title for, you know, Westeros year 156 or whatever. Um, She still gets all of that, but she's closer to them and stuff. And there's a sense of them coming before her and asking because they trust her. Whereas now, Hisdar's got himself a fucking blinged out throne room with what money we know not, right? (laughs) Including an empty chair just to make it completely clear that he hasn't killed her, but she's not there anymore. And, um, uh, and the place is a fucking three ring circus. It's a, it's a lion's den. He yeah. sits down, and it's not a bunch of people going, oh, I believe I will be heard, and, and heard right fairly as well, for I have faith in my monarch, and I believe I will be led. <laughs> Walking yeah. into his presence going, ooh, the fucking, ooh, the fucking, ooh, the fucking hell are you? Yeah, it's um, it, it, it's not looking, I mean, it's looking like a tricky situation for his star to be in now. He doesn't seem yeah. like the, the sort of strongest leader either with the way he um, no, he's not. reacts to some of these challenges. Uh, one of them being from um, the that massive Yunkish army that was sitting outside the gates and they'd made peace with. Um, things aren't going so well with them either. So, so you've got a few of this delegation turning up with uh, the severed head of Admiral Grolio, <laughs> the old uh, guy. The Admiral oh, you, without the ships. The you guy, feel yeah. for him, don't you? All he wanted was to go home. Yeah. Yeah, he won't be doing that anymore. Um, so nope. chopped his head off. Basically, it's a reprisal because the their leader, that Yurkaz guy, the really old, the really old frail chap, um, he died during the uh, during that massive, you know, where the, where the dragon turned up at that massive fight at the, uh, um, you know, on game day over in, uh, mm. <laughs> and uh, he he died in some in the sort of stampede as everybody was fleeing. Yeah. So in in retaliation, they've killed Grolio. 
yeah. um, which is which is obviously one um, sort of problem. And then they also make this demand. They say you'll get the rest of the hostages back alive if you destroy the dragons because yeah. they're too dangerous. This is partly um, this is partly sort of just. I suppose uh, you can see why the uh, after what's happened in the stadium, why the uh, the Yunkishman would demand this. But also, it feels a bit like they're just putting more and more conditions down just to just to have this fight. They they, they want to have this this battle. They want to sack the city, and they're not happy yeah. with this peace they've made, no matter what sort of terms that are given. There's this guy yeah. Bloodbeard, particularly uh, one of the, one of the one of the leaders who's particularly spoiling for a fight, according to Barristan. Yeah, yeah. And um, uh, to be honest, while I knew all of this was important, I think one of the reasons why I, I, I'm often quite impatient with some of these sort of subplots is that it's quite intrigue-filled and it all relates to who's where in the world and I don't have a working map of Westeros. and yeah. I haven't, I'm reading it on a Kindle, so I haven't got a proper map. And... Um, I'm not using any of the maps that are online in case they contain spoilers. So it's like, uh, what's ha- where, who, where, who cares about who and who was where and why and what? And like, I kind of need, I need, like, you know, the thing at the end of the book where it says, you know, such and such a house does such and such and this faction cares about this and all that. Um, I kind of need that in like a live updated format for each chapter. Yeah. So I can sort of flip down and be like kind of, so what's going on with the Yunkish now? <laughs> oh, oh, they hate right. Oh, oh, oh. Okay, no, that's a, that's dramatic, isn't it? I'll go back and I'll go back and enjoy the chapter now. You know, so um, so yeah, I, I very all of that to say, uh, it is a bit frustrating, but I do quite like the way you've got Barristan Selmy, who's like he he talks down his political savvy here quite a lot, but he's he's a, he's a boss. He knows what he's talking about, and just kind of hearing it is like getting a a master's degree in intrigue. You know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's um, I mean, he, he's not happy sort of being involved in this kind of stuff but he's quite a useful observer because of his experience um he's seen a lot of this before hasn't he in various things in king's, king's landing yeah. um one of the other people that who are in a bit of trouble at the moment is quentin and so barristan's trying to warn him to leave he's basically explaining to him that he's in a really dangerous position now because daenerys was the person protecting him and basically he's the if his star was the guy who tried to poison Daenerys, which we kind of think it is. Quentin's the prime sort of target for someone to frame because he's yeah. got a motive for trying to kill his star. And yeah. basically, Barristan says, if you if you stick around, you're going to get arrested for this. So yeah. get out, you know, leave, flee. <laughs> yeah, and I quite it continues Quentin's 100% streak as the nicest man not yet to be killed in Westeros. Because he, <laughs> he's still, he's, he's like, he, Barristan puts all of this to him and he goes, really? <laughs> wow, no, of course I wouldn't do anything like that. And Barristan himself says, how the hell is this kid still alive? You know, he's supposed to be from... <laughs> Dawn, which is all, you know, all intrigue and plots and people planning to kill other people. He's just the one innocent in the whole of Dawn. <laughs> yeah. And he's be- he's the one who's been sent out to go forth into the world and politic. Yeah. Hmm. Bit, bit yeah. questionable, that, I think. <laughs> yeah, the problems of birthright. Uh, then we, yeah. We, we... yeah, yeah, tell me about hereditary monarchy, eh? Nonsense, <laughs> nonsense. 
So, so is is Quentin going to make a run for it? We've, we don't have to wait long to find out because the next chapter is the spurned suitor, which is Quentin himself. Yeah. And he's heading out. He's leaving. No, he's not. He's going out to uh, a secret meeting with the windblown, Gemma, this, uh, this group of mercenaries that he that they sort of joined for a while to help them get to, to Marine. Yeah. And then basically cash them in as soon as they got there. Um <laughs> So they're not, they're, not, they're not exactly uh, particularly best friends with these lot now. Uh, Quentin says that he can't go home because uh, so many people died to get him here. Like there's these three friends of his who who died. And I thought this was interesting just because in parallel with this, I've been listening to a podcast about the First World War and mm. um, how difficult it was for them to basically... the. The, the point that the, the the presenter was making was that the the war actually went on a, a lot longer than it needed to, mm-hmm. um, and a lot more people were killed just because it was so hard to find a peace because of how much you'd already lost. So sort of your initial peace demands at the start of the war mm-hmm. um, just seemed too small um, by the end of it because because of sort of the level of sacrifice that you've made on both sides. Yeah. And there's an element here where, you know, the sacrifice that you've made to get to the position that you're in makes yeah. makes it harder to make the sort of correct, pragmatic decision because you're thinking about all the all the sort of sacrifices that you've made. Yeah, you, you're thinking that if you just stick with it, you could still win. Yeah. Whereas, yeah, like at this point, I, I mean, I, I love his moxie. I love that he's carrying on doing it, but I'm not at all confident this is going to come yeah. off well for him, you know? Yeah. So, so he's, and they're having this discussion as they're on the way to this meeting. You know, they, uh, one of his sort of guardsmen um, point out some guys just died of the flux in the corner and, and they say, you know, did his death have meaning? And trying to make the point that you, sort of what you, you, your life should <laughs> yeah. have meaning, but sort of the way you die, you don't really get to choose if it's important or not. Yeah. Um, so, but Quentin's, you know, obviously a bit of an idealist, and um, <laughs> he, he, I mean, I, you can't understand that. He, for example, one of the uh, one of the key like lords, like father figures to him over in Dawn, mm. um, his sort of he sent his son over with Quentin to protect him, and his son died. And yeah. he's thinking, I can't sort of face him with nothing, like face. Yeah, his guys I mean, to go back and be like, sorry, yeah, you know, what do you do? Yeah. So they approach the tattered prince and the wind blown. Um, basically, he sits down. This guy and says, "Right, I'll you know I'll, I'll at least hear you out. Seeing as you're a, seeing as you're a prince, but if I don't like what you say, I'm going to kill you." And um, <laughs> <laughs> typical, typical Westeros approach. And yeah. um, the uh, what what Quentin wants to do is get them to help him steal a dragon. I mean, it's bold. Give him that. <laughs> but, not only bold, it's a heist movie. All of a sudden, <laughs> this book, which is which has, as we've said to this point, meandered somewhat. Um, certainly, the last two over the last two books, meandering has been a feature. All of a sudden, we're locked on in full on Ocean's Eleven mode, <laughs> Le- leading me to the question: Which one's Clooney? <laughs> mm-hmm. Because because Quentin's got far more of a sort of Matt Damon sort of vibe going on, you know. He's the ingenue doesn't might might have some skills, but really doesn't know what he's doing. Yeah, yeah. Who's who's so, going to be the inside man then? Is it his star himself? Do you reckon Quentin's oh, going to walk? Into, <laughs> Quentin's going to walk <laughs> into the throne room, and his star's going to go up and go, Quentin, 
you son of a bitch, and then he gives to a high five. <laughs> Just sort of walks in at the end of a very long, gilded throne room. Quentin stops, tense moment, and then he just throws out the wink and the gun. Just <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, um, that, that's all to come. Um, I'm not sure if his dad's going to be in on it, but um, the, it, when, it, the, it better have now, otherwise it's going to be an anticlimax. <laughs> the, the, the tattered prince says that he. You know, if he wants this, they don't want gold. They want pentos. They want that. They want a city. So, um, but I mean, encourage him. It's, it's not. A, yeah. It's not a no. And I'm going to kill you. It's a. Yeah. It's a negotiating point. So, yeah. Quentin's yeah. got maybe maybe an ally there if he's willing to give up a city which he doesn't own. Uh, is, yeah. Well, aren't the pentoshis sort of? They're not chumps, are they? It's not like you walk in there with a stick and go right. All of this belongs to me. <laughs> yeah, you know, yeah. you have a flag, no flag, no pentos. You know, like it's <laughs> he can't pull off the old British Empire trick, can he? So yeah. um, I don't know. Is this in any sense realistic, or is he basically said, "I will help you with your realistic and uh, uh, time-bound needs if you deliver to me the moon encrusted with diamonds." <laughs> go, go, go on. You've got a week. You know, yeah. It doesn't, yeah, it does seem like a, uh, yeah, very hard to see how Quentin would be able to provide that, but maybe we'll see later on. Yeah. Um, the next chapter is the Griffin Reborn. Uh, we're back with Griff, who, um, again, I mean, this was earlier in this book we were introduced to him, but it still seems a long time since we were last with Griff. Um, yeah. He's heading up this invasion force of Westeros. So this is quite exciting because finally someone, okay, it's not Daenerys, but someone from um, across the Narrow Seas is landing to start kicking things off, and it is a Targaryen. Um, They take this, the old sort of castle that Griff used to own, called Griffin's Roost. It's one of these sort of lightning attacks that it's over before it even begins because, you know, no one's expecting an attack. (laughs) (laughs) I particularly like that it's a very imposing, horrific place to attack as long as they've had time to warm up the boiling oil. <laughs> and if they haven't, then they just... They, at one point he says the bucket did more damage than the oil, because yeah, it's just... Yeah. Just imagine them pouring out this oil instead of it being like... Ah, ah, ah. It's like, oh, you fucker. I think it's going to be hell to get this out of this tunic now. You, and it bounced off my head as well, didn't it? Have him. Go on, shoot him. Just for that. Just for the yeah. laundry bill. I think the thing that really summed it up for me was the fact that they've got this big gate which was closed but wasn't wasn't even barred. No one had bothered to put the sort of the wooden bar across it. So basically, as soon as someone have pretty much kicked it, it just burst open. Like, oh, all right, in we go. Um, so yeah, they weren't ready. Um, so the uh, they sort of take over the castle. At least this is seen as the first step. Um, we find out a bit later on the the plan is to take a few more castles around here. They're in the Stormlands, um, the old sort of Baratheon um, area, and they want to take Storm's End as well, which is the the sort of the Ooh. big prize, which would show that they're a serious force to be reckoned with. Um, yeah. The reason they feel that they can start doing this is because um, Robert and Renly were the two um, sort of heads of the Baratheon house which um which people actually liked who people actually liked and stannis is both unpopular and a far far distance away so yeah. um, and they and the sort of the stormlands have this sort of tenuous link to to the crown in king's landing now 
yeah. especially with the questions around Joffrey. So basically, various political things have come together to make it a good time to attack the Stormlands. Um, yeah. the, the broader plan seems to be get in, try and take Storm's End, and then reach out to Dawn and to the Reach and try and get those those guys on the side as well, especially Dawn, who've got these big armies which haven't entered the battle, entered a, any of this conflict yet. Yeah. Um, which yeah. is going to be key. Uh, we get a bit of Griff's backstory um, into why he was sent into exile. And mm. it was basically, do you remember this big, the Battle of the Bells at Stony Steps? This is where Ro- King Robert was, or oh, Robert as he was then, <laughs> the artist known as Robert as he was then. <laughs> the, artist, was, um, the artist presently known as Robert. Yeah, <laughs> yeah he, was in, he was wounded and recovering somewhere in, um, in this place uh, called Stony Sept. And then uh, this, uh, like, loyalist army came down on the on the town to try and find him and kill him. And Griff was leading that, and he spent it seems quite a while just going through the city, desperately trying to find Robert. And the sort of the people there kept moving him and hiding him. And in the end, Ned came down and sort of broke the siege. Mm. And that basically did for for Griff for his sort of. Um, he was he was turfed out and sort of sent into exile because of that because he failed, um, lost his land and title and all this. Yeah, oh, it's quite yeah. interesting. He also he also thinks if he was more like Tyrion, one of his thoughts immediately afterwards. Apparently, he was having a discussion and he says, you know, not even Tyrion Lannister could have could have found him. And the guy who's talking to him is like, well, I think Tyrion would have just burnt the whole place to the ground and found his ashes. <laughs> yeah. So, so is this, yeah. Is this, he wasn't ruthless enough. He feels, yeah. Well, and and that must be a kind of a galling thing uh, for a kind of lord of Westeros who's clearly not averse to a lot of quite cunning killing, mm. um, uh, to, to sort of have to face. But I, I actually I do think that's kind of interesting because I think on some level, because there is also such a sort of, you know, albeit to many people it's just lip service. But there is this sense of chivalry. There is the idea that right and wrong are things that exist and should be paid attention to. Yeah. And, um, but as we've seen, the nature of the Game of Thrones is that to win, you cannot care about any standard, any any standard of right and wrong, or you know, living up to whatever's right. You just can't do that. Um, and and so I, I actually quite like the sight of somebody. I mean, implicitly, I suppose, but somebody sort of looking that contradiction straight in the face and going, "Well, I wasn't as ruthless as Tywin." And fair enough, that means I'm still alive. Yeah. But um, does that make me a failure in that sense? You know, he feels this sense of failure that he wasn't ruthless enough, but I'm fairly certain Mm. that if you asked him, he'd say, no, there are things that shouldn't be done, and that's why I didn't do it. Yeah, yeah. So, so, uh, which I think is actually a huge huge thing in the whole sort of worldview that George is pitching here. I think he spends a lot of time acting as though, you know, it's it's kind of right for the most ruthless bastard to win. Yeah. And... um, and so, and you know, I find that a bit frustrating because I think that's a bit of a you can't really say that and then not critique it from lots of different angles. So I quite like yeah. having a, a smart character who you basically do quite like, um, kind of facing that straight on and being like, essentially being like, well, this is a bit, this is bollocks, isn't it? There's bollocks on both sides of this moral equation here, you know? Yeah, I, I love the story of the Stony Sept as well. I, I remember 
um, one of the earlier chapters where he's remembering sort of sprinting up these steps and bursting into various rooms in the in the town desperately trying to find Robert. I just think it's a yeah. great um, tale in itself, isn't it? This uh, legendary Battle of the Bells, um, sort of one of the key turning points in the war. Um, mm. So it's it's quite nice to sort of yeah have another look at it from a from a, n- a new point of view. Yes, yeah, um, very much. No, um, I have to say, sorry. The only other thing about that was the sort of it is another point of view. It, it like a sort of credible military force in Westeros. It seems to be established within six pages. <laughs> like yeah. oh. Fucking hell. Like, you know, we've had the long, drawn-out march of this, you know, whittling down of Stannis' army, and you've got, you know, the um, uh, you've got the Boltons and their extremely fractious host hanging out in Winterfell, dying off one at a time because Hercule Poirot doesn't know what he's doing. <laughs> and you've got, you know, you've, you've got the Lannisters sort of stretched very thin, and, and then all of a sudden somebody turns up in the south with a couple of boats and goes, right, I'm going to boss this. <laughs> and does so. It's like, what? <laughs> yeah. Well, they've only got. They've only taken a couple of castles so far. That's all. They're a long way uh, to go. Four castles, though, Matt. Would you Would you turn away yeah. four castles? You no, can't describe that as start. a failure, can you? And they've got elephants as well. We've well, got a couple of elephants. <laughs> on on the way, though. I sort of like that they're waiting for their elephant delivery. I just imagine <laughs> them sitting there and refreshing the sort of package tracker thing, <laughs> just seeing how far it's gotten. For some reason, it's still in bloody Manchester, and it hasn't come to them. And there's no good reason. Where are <laughs> my elephants? Estimated delivery date keeps slipping. Like, yeah, oh, come on. Yeah. And then what they'll do is they'll get so frustrated one night they'll just have a bit of a knees up, get a bit pissed. Sleep in. Next morning, they wake up to a little red slip on the mat. You were out when we called. <laughs> Your elephants <laughs> yeah. are now available at the elephant distribution venue. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's not just elephants actually. So a ten thousand, a ten thousand strong army set out towards Westeros, and only half of them have really arrived so far. Mm. Uh, so because there was, as ever, as there always tends to be whenever any ship in this world crosses a large expanse of water, there was a storm which separated them. Um, yeah. So they're sort of still waiting for reinforcements as well. Um, in the meantime, it's, it's quite funny wandering around this castle where Griff used to be the boss, but only very briefly. Um, yeah. Very few people remember him. He's been away that long. So he's a strange sort of foreign guy who's come back. Um, we have a bit of time in his in his room on his own, where he's he's basically getting old wine to to bathe his hands in, because this this grayscale's slowly running up his fingers now. So it's yeah. sort of a bit of a race against time for for Griff as well, now. Yeah, what, what's what's his end game here then? Like he's gonna, in fact, he's not only gonna die. He's got essentially, you know, the, the, a deadly disease that can be communicated by touching, hmm. like. So what's he going to do? Like, a sprint to the throne? Good heavens, Lord Connington. Why did you do this so quickly? Oh, no reason. I just thought, you know, time to kick ass, take names. Nothing <laughs> at all to do with the fact that my arm's falling off. I think that is it. He wants to try and do this lightning attack and get um, get the sort of the son of his sort of old ally, um, Targaryen ally, on the throne as sort of to make up for the fact that he failed Rhaegar. Um, yeah. Sort of, so he keeps. We all, almost every chapter with him, he thinks, yeah. you know, I, I failed the father. I'm not going to fail the son. Yeah. Um, so he's just going to do everything he can before he dies to to get him back on the throne. To get him on the throne. Yeah. Speaking of his son, um, speaking of this uh, uh, Aegon Targaryen, mm. he turns up um, with a couple of elephants actually. Um, <laughs> at, 
and um and also he's he's elevated he's chosen his first member of his his king's guard which is this uh, duck the uh, the knight um who it's quite funny that um griff thinks you know it's not the best choice because you could pick um lords with better titles who would get more sort of land on side for you yeah to, to put in the king's guard but I don't know. I think there are there are two reasons why you pick someone for the King's Guard. There's that the wider politics, and there's also you know these guys are there to protect you, so you want the most loyal people you can find in those positions. And I'm kind yeah. of with Aegon here. I think that is more important, especially at this stage. Um, yeah. You can find other ways of offering things to to get powerful lords on board. You can give them other titles and positions. Yeah. But for your King's Guard, you just want your loyalist. Men, surely. Yeah. They need to be the people two who things. Definitely, yeah. yeah. Yeah, they need to be really good at fighting and really loyal. That's all you need for your King's Guard. Yeah, absolutely. I couldn't agree with you more there. Like, and the idea of like seeing everything. I think Connington's moved on to the next bit where you know, you've know you got to give away these positions as ways of garnering power. I think Aegon, not unreasonably since his entire life has been spent in hiding because of who he is, is like, no, no, think I'm going to have the best possible military surrounding me all the time, thanks very much, before I move on to patronage. <laughs> yeah. He's getting um, he's getting very sort of headstrong already, Aegon, isn't he? Um, you can yeah. feel this here. He's not just going to say, uh, yes, uncle, um, yeah. to anything that Griff says and he's he sits down here and says yeah just to be having a chat about this uh, this attack you're going to do and Griff's immediately thinking oh great he's going to say I don't want to do it and they're going to say that. yeah I agree but uh, I'll be leading it so uh, <laughs> you, just, you just take a step back uncle uh, this is my, yeah. I got this oh my word now yeah which I think is the thing here is that while I agree he's made a tactically sound decision here it doesn't mean I like him <laughs> because he's turned into sort of grade A type 1 arrogant rich kid, hasn't he? <laughs> he's got the first sniff of being inside a castle where he doesn't have to pretend to be related to one of the serving wenches. And he's like, oh, yes. As he's gone directly to his head. He's like, well, my experience of hanging out on long and interminable barge rides through warm climbs has clearly adapted me well. <laughs> leading the vanguard of a battle in a place that's been at war for a long time or to put it another way in which all the bad fighters have already been killed so fucking bring it on what do you mean Connington hey, know your place uh, I think who's the king who's the king is it is it me right here we go I'm desperate for him to get his head snicked off at the first opportunity I get the feeling that he'll never want to see another barge again. I reckon if he gets sat on the Iron Throne, his first decree will be burn every barge. <laughs> burn <laughs> there will be the no boats. more barges. They'll call him the king who did not float. <laughs> the king who yeah. never sailed. Yeah, I think it's quite interesting, actually. This um, Something that you say is a reason you don't like him particularly much is I think that's the element um, of someone in this position. That's the kind of character you need to be for it to work. I mean, if you compare yeah. Aegon with Quentin, they've mm. both done this at various points. Um, Aegon with the sort of the Golden Company and Quentin in front of Daenerys. They've done this big reveal. It is I, you know, strike the heroic pose. Yeah. Um, this is my true identity. And Aegon pulled that off and Quentin didn't, largely because of their characters, because Aegon's yeah. got the sort of charisma to do it or the, um, yeah. the self-belief or the arrogance, if you like, and Quentin yeah. just doesn't. Yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, but it, obviously that doesn't mean we have to like one over the other. Um, but yeah, that's where we leave it. So Aegon wants to lead this attack on Storm's End. We'll see how that goes. I think we will. 
I think we may have to wait till the winds of winter, but uh, I'm not, don't quote me on that. Oh, are we are we at this are we at this point in the book now where every character ends with an ambiguous ending, and it's and and there's no more resolution in the book. It, possibly. <laughs> how, does he, how does he decide when he's got to stop writing, Matt? How is he making these decisions? Because it seems to me that he's written plot lines that have now spanned three or four volumes. And at <sighs> what point does he say, it's not so much a book anymore, is it? Is he just, should just release one chapter at a time. They're not really. The individual <laughs> books don't tell any sort of a story arc for any of the characters worth a tuppenny damn. It's like all the... I, so I'm tapping into a kind of outrage here, which is surprising even me. But it's it's like the two towers, the middle book of the Lord of the Rings, where there's not really a beginning and not really an ending, and there's not really anything that happens in between because they just have to go from there to over here. It's like that, but it's been now been stretched out for four books. <laughs> Do you think he should just he should just start doing the sort of Dickens style? Yeah, it's just a chapter. Yeah, just serialize it. I tell you what, he would over, he would single handedly and overnight resurrect serial fiction if he did that. (laughs) If he like, if he like, wanted to start his own, um, his own magazine. You know, the way they used to have, where writers got their start by getting paid sort of $500 to $1,000 for writing a sort of short story sort of thing. Starts his own magazine, starts putting out a chapter at a time of the Winds of Winter. Done. Do you know what I mean? Like, mm. like it would be fantastic. Yeah, but I mean, he's, he's no, kind what of, he's going to do is just make me wait. He's released that many preview chapters now. It's almost like <laughs> he's, he's anyway. kind of doing that without paying for it. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, uh, next up is uh, the sacrifice. Speaking of sacrifice, is the sacrifice. Yeah. Um, so this is another one of those ones where it takes a couple of pages to work out what's going on. Um, which it's a technique that some people like. I, I don't particularly, but you know it yeah. doesn't take long to sort out. So they're building a pyre. It takes us a while to work out who it's for. Um, but there's this. There seems there's this wider argument between this. There's a very clear divide, isn't there? There always has been with Stannis's army between the south and the north. You've got the northern contingent yeah. and the southern contingent, and they both take very different approaches to the, how this war is going. Very, very different, very distinctive beliefs, very different, distinctive motives for actually doing it, um, and dramatically different tolerance for the cold as well. I think is the thing we can get here. <laughs> and I do like that the north south, the north south kind of stereotypes of the UK persist in this thing where the people from the south are all oh it's cold it's soggy I don't like rubbish and the northerners are just sitting there going bit brisk isn't it I'll be fine I'm not going to put anything on over my string vest no what do you think I am some sort of wimp the, the northerners are basically saying cold this isn't cold <laughs> and it, you feel it's sort of one part honesty and one part just bravado but um, yeah, anyway. absolutely yeah yeah so and but the part, part of the dividing line obviously is over the religion and the the southerners are saying we need to burn someone because the you know we need to uh, put a sacrifice to the red god so so he helps us more. And the northerners are saying no 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 no. The reason all this is coming along is because you've angered the old gods. These are the guys who are in charge around here, and um, burning people is only going to make them more angry. And in, mm. doing the saying this in the sort of shadow of this. Um, this weirwood tree in the distance, which is quite, which is quite nice. Um, it looks like things are going from bad to worse for Stannis's army. This is why they're building the pyre. Um, it was bad enough when we were last there, but um, they sort of stopped in in this village, didn't they? And, and hope hope that they could catch some fish, and they've done yeah. that. But it turns out they've basically fished out the lake now. So 
they're just yeah. stuck. And yeah. the, the, the people they're burning, at first you think, oh, crap, is, it, is this going to be... Well, either you think, is this going to be um, Asher Greyjoy, who's the yeah. POV character? If you've seen yeah. the series, you're thinking, oh, God, is he going to do something else? Spoiler alert. Um, yeah. But well, it's not really a spoiler it, alert, but let's just not discuss it, hey, because yeah. there were some moments in the last series which were fairly sickening. That was one of them. Okay. Um, he's actually burning four cannibals. So four guys have been um, caught chowing down on a on another soldier who's died, um, and they got, they're going to be burned for that. Uh, one, the actual the sergeant, the guy, the guy, well, sort of one of the four, actually goads one of the executioners into killing him first so he doesn't have to go yeah. through the um the ordeal of of sort of being burned alive. I mean yeah. imagine making that decision. Saying, right, yeah. I'm gonna get myself killed. I'm gonna get myself die. killed rather than getting burned, yeah. Mm. Horrible, yeah. horrible. Um, um now yeah. there, there are there are a couple of things which I noted about that moment. Yeah. First of all Is it the name? <laughs> I well the first thing I was gonna say was I thought Stannis was already at the castle. But uh, you're yeah. right. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, well, actually, can we do that first? What the fuck's going on? That Stannis' war drums were heard outside Winterfell. Shit went down as a result. Mm. But now apparently he wasn't there. He was hanging out next to a lake covered in ice that looks like Swiss cheese because they've tried to fish everything out of it. Yeah. So who was it? <sighs> well, um, what t- one of two things I think here. One is uh, we've had a bit of a time slip which isn't unknown in these books. Oh, yeah, um, but at least he usually does it by splitting it across novels. Yeah. Alternatively, um, judging by, and I'm saying this, judging by um, who he turns up with, maybe the force they heard outside Winterfell wasn't Stannis, but was actually this Night's, Night's Watch stroke um, Tycho Nestoria. Is it Tycho, do you say? Yeah. yeah, I think so, yeah. Uh, Iron Bank guy yeah. just turning up because that's who Theon was running, like fleeing to when we last were at Winterfell, and it looks like that's yeah. who he's turned up with. So maybe it was them, although quite why they'd be banging wardrobes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, well said. Because what, what do you do if there's only a few of you and the guy in charge is an accountant rather than a warrior? <laughs> <laughs> Do you reckon he was just sort of just he it all went to his head and he just sort of went there is only one time in my entire life that I a mere bean counter will be able to pretend to be you know one of the great kings of yore lads get the drums out we're marching it out <laughs> I no I I don't want to hear from tactically inadvisable don't give me any of that one two three four one two three four Tycho Nestorius is the absolute dog's bollocks after me now. <laughs> Actually, thinking about it, that the fact that Theon turns up with them means that this can't be a time shift, can it? Because, no. Because so, so, cause Theon's escaped. So um, It must have been them. Yeah, it must have been them. Bank. Why would they be... I, unless <laughs> unless because there's it? nothing else to do, Stannis has yeah. been banging the drums <laughs> from the village and they've heard him from there. Yeah, um, that would be quite a treat, wouldn't it? Or, or it could be. Doesn't did they not also say that it was um, that Moore's um, Umber was underneath the walls of Winterfell as well? Ah, uh, yeah. And that uh-huh. is exactly the sort of thing that an Umber would do, isn't it? Like he's, <laughs> he's freezing to death. He knows that he's got the least tactically defensible position for many, many miles around, and yeah. he he knows that there's a massive army inside that castle that could take him to pieces. But he badly needs to get inside. So yeah. of course, the only response an Umber could make is to go. <laughs> 
Time's about that time. Time to break it out. He's just basically he's basically standing outside the walls of Winsfell, arms wide, going, "Let's play." <laughs> it's come and have a go if you think you're hard enough for men, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Oh, so that that solves it. Yeah. So <clears throat> it must be Morzumber outside Winsfell. Yeah, who's just being a psycho, but that's a very believable <laughs> position for Morzumber to have taken. Yeah, yeah. Another um, one of the lords who. Um, has been knocking around Karstark, uh, sort of Castilian Karstark. There are quite a few of them now, which is quite hard to... There's one who's stuck in an yeah. ice cellar put Castle Blyke. There's one who had his head chopped off by Rob Stark what, ages mm. ago. And this is the Castilian, the guy who sort of took over <clears throat> the... Ca- oh, there's, there's, an, there's another one who's a prisoner. Is he down in King's Landing? Who's actually the, the heir to the Karstarks. And there's, there's this guy who's sort of an uncle who's just looking after the castle. And this is the mm. bloke who's who's turned up with Stannis. We know that this guy's dirty. We know yeah. that he's um he's in with Bolton. Yeah. Um but he's now sort of whispering, pouring poison into Stannis's ear. Yeah. Um something about the a couple of things that I noticed about this burning. Um one is uh even Asher Greyjoy, Asher of the Ironborn, you know, notoriously savage Iron Islanders is shocked by quite how savage this practice is of burning people yeah. alive. Yeah. Um, and, and also, the chief sort of executioner um, is this nasty sort of bloke who wants to burn Asher as well and has this... Uh, he, well, he, he's described in various ways which show that he's one of the worst. Uh, and he's, But he's, he's called Suggs. <laughs> <laughs> Do we, is this a moment where we need to do a British culture lesson for our American friends? <laughs> yeah, it's, it's basically, the Suggs is the name of a, um, a very famous uh, British musician uh, who was in both Madness and then later on, what was the other one he, he started? Squeeze. Um, two oh, two he? bands that were, yeah yeah. I assumed that he started Madness, made House of Fun, got rich, and then just went and sat in his chair in in Stamford Bridge, Chelsea. <laughs> <and> just... <laughs> but yeah, and Madness are this uh, sort of ska band that do kind of almost sort of novelty sounding songs, aren't they? And it's it's yeah. the last person you would expect to be burning people alive, put it that way. <laughs> <laughs> now, now here is an interesting question for you. Given that we've, in the past, we have had um, Marillion, who is a real <laughs> yeah. musician, appear in this book as a musician, right? <laughs> and I actually noticed in this as well, there's somebody in here called Manfred Min. Yeah. <laughs> it's very nearly Manfred Mann, right? So <laughs> so George is really, like, like, sluicing through the classics. He's got somebody from the 60s, somebody from the 70s, somebody from the 80s. Um. So did Suggs really piss him off? Because this character is just a horrendous human being. So do you reckon he sort of, he tried to get backstage at a madness gig once? And they were like, George R. R. Who? Fuck off. He said, right, I'm writing you in as this. Yeah. My, my favourite cross-cultural name um, to, that I've found so far in, in uh, Song of Ice and Fire was that Lannister guardsman who didn't even get a line but was called Red Lester, which is a cheese. <laughs> <laughs> I remember that. You can, you can see how somebody would get there. It's got a certain sort of rhythmic 
cadence yeah. kind of pull to it, and it sort of works <laughs> and stuff, but it is also a cheese. <laughs> Red is a really great nickname. Red Lester, mm, mm, yeah. not yeah. so much. Him and his best mate, Double Gloucester. Fat guy. <laughs> so we have uh, Wensleydale, who's, that sounds like a detective. Wensleydale. <laughs> 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 Private detective. Fantastic. Wensleydale. <laughs> it sounds like a it sounds like an ITV private like ITV it sort of does, cop show. It does, doesn't it? Last it week does. on Wensleydale. <laughs> Taggart, Spender, Bergerac, Morse, Wensleydale. <laughs> I don't know how you do things around there, Wensleydale, but here we do things by the book. <laughs> <laughs> oh, and you know, you know when he gets something right, what he'd do as well is he just he'd get it right and just somebody tells him something he needs to know, you just look at him and go, cracking. <laughs> just yeah. just walk out and just pull out a chunk of cheese and eat a bite of it. <laughs> <laughs> oh dear, we're getting we're getting off track. Oh dear, we? this is definitely Wednesday. <laughs> this is definitely one uh, one where it, it, if you're American and you're still with us, I'd like to thank you for your cultural forbearance with our bullshit. Um, yeah, so so they um, they move things to the village hall um, after the burning. Um, it looks like it's it's this classic position similar to what Sansa was in um, back in King's Landing for Asha, where she's effectively completely powerless and just watching yeah. other people argue over her and various people claim that they have her best interests at heart. Probably less so, less they don't actually say that in, in this example. But you've got people like Suggs who basically wants to burn her and then you've got <laughs> sorry I know it's hard to say with straight face because he's, he uses it as a mononym as well he's not like John Suggs or Carl Suggs or so. he's just Suggs, <laughs> Suggs. yeah um, and then you've got people like um, Mormont um, and this this uh, Massey guy who are effectively trying to protect her um, we we sort of we got introduced to Massey before where he, he basically wants to marry her because he fancies a claim to the Iron Islands. He doesn't really understand how uh, Iron <laughs> Island politics works, yeah. I don't think. It's, but, it's, it's kind of touching, isn't it, in a completely horrifying way, just mm. how many lords think that it's an easy get. Yeah. That, first of all, that they think Asher Greyjoy would be easy to marry. Yeah. But also, second of all, they think turning up on the Iron Islands, it would make the slightest, tiniest piece of legislative difference, as if the Iron Islanders are exactly the sort of people to go, well, I don't like it, but I've got to go along with it. Hmm. Yeah. Not not really. <laughs> it's interesting that Massey also is, um, is, is clear that he's one of the people who thinks, no, this is hopeless, this is a waste yeah. of time, we're not going to win. Um, and he's basically saying such um, in sort of the, the hall later on. And he gets in this big argument about it. And the problem is that there doesn't seem to be a way out. They either march on Winterfell and die there, or they stay mm. here, wait for the fish to run out and die here, or they try and retreat yeah. and, and, and die on the way home. Yeah. So um, it's just a, yeah, it sums up the hopeless situation. But. Uh, Massey, I came out of this chapter liking Massey a little bit more than I did before. He seemed, um, I don't know, there was something about the fact that he seems to be, he's not this sort of, he's not one of these extremists. He actually accidentally says gods at one point and is chastised yeah. for it. Yeah, um, I do sort of love that he does that as well. Like that he's, because it's just, it's a great example of how, 
you know, so many things in language start off as having sort of roots that people care about, but then they just become idioms of their own, completely yeah. divorced from their, their original kind of context. So I think it would have been well within his rights there to be like, oh, fuck off. <laughs> <laughs> Which I'm sure would go down wonderfully with the supporters of the Red God, who do seem to me to be an open-minded, tolerant, ecumenical type of bunch. <laughs> well, when it, when it comes to um, extremist beliefs, um, I suppose terminology matters a lot to them. <laughs> so they've got God, gods, yeah, whatever. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, so uh, we have that argument. I um, Asher leaves and goes out into the snow and has another mm. encounter with Suggs. And then before they can go much further, riders... Oh no! Yes. The Bolton army is upon them, but wait, mm. as we've said, it's not. It's uh, members of the Night's Watch um, and Triss, for some reason, the guy who was captured for a while, um, mm. and this guy, Tycho Nestoris, the mm. banker, and Theon and, and, and Jane Poole as well, with a who's got a black nose now because from Frostbite. Yeah, but yeah, Theon's yeah. back. I was like, oh, quite excited, the fact that these, these two are reunited now. What did you think? Yeah, me too. Um, because I have often wondered, and in the TV series, I still wonder what on earth the point was of Theon's character arc. I know we've been over this and, you know, character change and, you know, losing that arrogance and all of that. Yeah. Fair enough. But it was done at a great and extremely thigh-rubby length for me. It was it was all a little bit like, <laughs> look how horrible I can be to this guy sort of thing. You have to be along with me in case you miss some important piece of plot. Um, and to me, I still, you know, I don't think it could have mad less. Um, but uh, so this, to me, feels like I've gone around a very long detour and perhaps Theon's experience is going to start feeding into the experience of other people. Now, this is a glorious feeling. You're absolutely right. I am quite excited by this. And it's it's only the fact that this is this is very, very appealing, but it is small potatoes when compared with how I'm going to feel if this ever happens for Arya. If yeah. Arya's story loops back around and reaches somebody else, I, I will I will sit and I will cry. I really will, with <laughs> sheer relief that it's been worth it. <laughs> Uh, we'll, we'll be on to an Arya chapter soon, actually, so wait and yeah. see. Uh, no, we won't, Matt. No, we won't. As she repeats many times during that chapter, she must lose her name, Arya thought. But that's, a, that, that, that's for... We'll get there. Yeah, we'll get there. <laughs> and the, 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 one of the things, whenever Theon and Asha sort of appear together, it always reminds me of the, um, the, the one time in the Game of Thrones TV series which made me, unintentionally made me laugh out loud. And it was when do you remember, there's this breakout attempt to get Theon out of jail, and they um, like Asher or Yara, she's in the um, in the series, leads this group of crack team into the into the uh, into the Dreadfort, gets to the uh, gets to the sort of the, the jail that the cells has this big fight with Ramsay Bolton, and then Ramsay like unlocks the gate for these dogs. He says, "Here are the dogs," and. Um, the next, it just then it's just sort of smash cut to her just just running like I'm jumping on a boat, and, and the guy's like laughing. He's like, "Oh, forget it, we're going." So <laughs> these dogs just made him suddenly decide to go. Shit, run! Yeah. <laughs> yeah, as if as if they hadn't bargained for the idea that they might not not only heavily armed and completely psychopathic human beings, but that I can cope with. But dogs, no, yeah. no, no, no. <laughs> and not for nothing, um, 
Ramsey's like, what, less than 10 yards away from Asher as he starts fiddling with this lock, because if she can't get there and just like chop his arm off as he's definitely trying yeah. to do this. Yeah, this, uh... which is one of the weaknesses of Ramsey as a character, isn't it? Because he seems to every nobody seems to have worked out that they can just kill him. Nobody likes him. <laughs> but, and in this yeah. world where, you know, literally being being a woman or a man or poor or rich or any all of them are good enough reasons to be killed but Ramsey somehow has managed to find this sort of you know platonic ideal of complete bastardry beyond which people <laughs> just don't bother trying to kill you I'm like oh great fantastic genius yeah um the next chapter is victorian um hey. we're back with um the man who throughout this chapter displays a series of examples of his enlightened leadership and basically um, kills kills on a whim. Um, hmm. it's, it, it's really interesting um, here. He, Victorian's a great example of that sort of magical, like black magical, dark magical combination of mm. um, stupidity. I mean, he's really, th- he's really, really he, thick. Thick and as really, two really short planks, isn't he? Yeah, and really, really short tempered, and really, really powerful. And yeah. it just you can think of very little worse than than being stuck near somebody who is all three of those things, um, and yeah. So, yeah, so for example, it, right. so they keep capturing these ships, and one example he captures this uh, Giscari captain who says that uh, Daenerys is is dead, so he just casually rips his tongue out for lying and then drowns him, um, just just because. <laughs> yeah. Just, just because that's what you do, right? Yeah. I, I feel a little bit with this whole chapter, like Victorian has read in a book somewhere what a king's supposed to be like. And yeah. so he's being completely ruthless and he's defending the honour of his lady. Yeah. And and the whole stuff with Makoro as well, who he's fished out and starts treating as though. But he, he can't really bring himself to, to authentically be like, yes, the Red God is my God and fantastic and, you know, great stuff. Um, and Makoro does all the stuff that he usually does to get to get a ruler on side. You know, I have seen your victory in the fires and, you know, here's a bit of Derek Akora cold reading for you. So the next good thing that happens to you, you're going to put down to my God and then you'll be on side. And he does all of that. And Victorian is on side. But he hasn't really understood that he's supposed to take seriously this sort of, you know, God religion element. So yeah. he just sort of goes, well, it worked, didn't it? Yeah, fantastic. Sacrifice to him. Yeah, work for him as well. And the drowned God, obviously. We've got two gods now. Two gods. Two gods for the price of one God. That's right. Sorry, Makaro. <laughs> can't hear you there. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> he just, he does he's so of... stupid. He doesn't understand that he's supposed to have been compromised by this. And it actually becomes a strength. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And he also does the... Um... This thing, like, he's heard that Daenerys is releasing slaves. So when he takes these ships with uh, people on them who are slaves, he sort of very sort of high-handedly says, you're now released from being slaves and you will become, like, rowers on the Iron Ship, which is a great (laughs) honour. It is as well, isn't it? It's as if it's it's a a dramatically more malign version of... It sort of reminded me of that sort of Alan Partridge type character, you know, somebody who's who's kind of heard about political correctness and understands that it probably needs to be practiced, but just doesn't understand why in the slightest little bit, and so gets it so wrong so completely. So he's heard that slavery bad, 
So he's like, he captures all these people, sets them free, and then goes, congratulations, you are now free to do precisely what I order you to do in conditions of work which are not terribly enjoyable. Down you go. Now into the hold. No, it's rowing. You'll enjoy it eventually. <laughs> you can just imagine, like, a couple of the slaves just looking at each other sideways, like, oh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, okay. yeah, I'm not even working for somebody who acknowledges the inherent injustice of this situation. He thinks he's done me a favour. What? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, um, so yeah, he, he's doing the freeing the slaves, but not quite in the same way that Daenerys <laughs> does. Um, let's be honest. Yeah. But yeah, they're continuing to capture these ships as they as they sail towards Marine. I think they get up back up to sixty ships in total by the time the end of this chapter. Um, mm. And every ship tent seems to bring a treasure. Like a, he, find, he, he seems to come across this Marinese telescope. Mm. Um, it looks like uh, people, the people of Mir have uh, have managed to to design a telescope, um, which he he takes, yeah. and they also come across this Lysine ship, which was um, basically full of um, people they were going to take to the pleasure houses. Um, so basically, full of prostitutes. He immediately throws over the boys, um, drowns them because he thinks that you know he doesn't like them, and then yeah. he picks the seven best looking girls and basically sends them off on a rowing boat and sets it on fire as a sacrifice to both the drowned god and the red god it's just oh. it's it is this combination of them just um almost like i would say he's almost mentally ill in in terms yeah. of how how stupid he is like he's just yeah. he's you know and but he's also got all this power and he's entirely ruthless with it so he's just yeah, it's the kind. He's he's. I think Victorian almost more. He's almost on the same level as Ramsay Bolton as a complete psychopath. He just does these things that make sense only to him, um, yeah. and make oh, absolute sense to him and logical sense. But but just it just comes across as insane yeah. to anyone else. Oh, that's really interesting because to me, like I, I think I, I think you're right. But I had like I didn't respond to Victorian in the same way as I did to Ramsay because Ramsay so clearly. Um, like takes joy in doing these horrendous things like he does them because they are horrendous and because yeah. he derives power from them there's a logic in it even if it is like a horrifying logic and there is a there is a logic in what victorian does as well but it's not so much designed towards power it's mm. sort of it's sort of designed towards playing a role he's completely misunderstood yeah you know, yeah, like, and you know that of the kind of all-conquering king. And you imagine in his mind's eye, he's you know he's kind kind of like you feel you know it's not uncommon for a certain kind of nationalist politician in the UK or the US to start acting as though Churchill, you know, they're Churchill's heir, yeah. and have completely misunderstood what it was that made what Churchill did desirable or indeed even slightly acceptable. Um, you know, was the circumstances of the time and all the, you know, the kind of complexities of whatever. But they've just mm. decided that kind of doing and saying, uh, you know, pithy things about the necessity of war equals being Churchillian. Yeah. And I sort of feel like Victorians in that same place, you know. Yeah, it's interesting, I suppose, because Ramsey, uh, you're right, is, I suppose he... I'd imagine he, he knows that a lot of the stuff that he does is you know, morally 
wrong and sort of in the because mm. even even in the in the world that he lives in is is seen as morally wrong and he just does it these dreadful cruel things because he likes it because he enjoys inflicting that kind of pain on people mm. um whereas victorian does on does similar kind of horrific things but genuinely thinks that you know he's absolutely right in in sort of morally and this is the thing that he should be doing and I'm not sure which is more dangerous or which is more frightening, actually. Someone who openly yeah. is, is under, at least understands the rules and just breaks them because he likes hurting people and someone who thinks the rules are telling him to do this. Mm. Um, That's very interesting. That is a very, very good point, actually. Um, yeah, I wonder. I do wonder. I'll we'll see, say, I suppose. I'll probably say they're both equally frightening. Let's put it that way. <laughs> yes, 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 that's true. Um, Victorian also has a uh, actually just very briefly maybe we should have drawn a, be- a better comparison is him and um, his brother uh, Euron yeah. Um, yeah. but I think the, uh, I think Euron and Ramsey are quite similar anyway um, that's true also I barely remember Euron because it happened many thousands of pages ago <laughs> yeah that, there's that as well uh, the, he's also Victorian has got this dragon horn which he um, which he's been given by Euron to help control the dragons and it's this thing that um that if you remember Euron's uh, one of his guys blew at the king's moot, and it, mm. it basically burned this bloke out from the inside when he blew it. Yeah. And Makoro says, "Yeah, this is a this this thing's legit, basically. And if you use it, you will get <laughs> you will get your you're going to get burned out from the inside." <laughs> yeah, it was two things, isn't it? It's one, definitely use this because the dragons will come to you, and two. Get some of the poor sort to actually blow it. <laughs> I tell you what, it reminded me of actually was um, here, here we go another another media reference um, which many people may not get because we're horrifically obscure. Um, Phoenix Knights. It's Phoenix Knights. It's the start of Phoenix Knights series two where um, Brian Potter's lost his liquor license and his mate just tells him just get get a fall guy. Go on, but you're behind the you're behind the scenes pulling the strings. So what he's out here looking for now is his Jerry St. Clair of horn blowing. Yeah. Doing doing yeah. a sort of club style brimful of Asher through the through the horn. <laughs> uh, the the final chapter for today is the ugly little girl. Do you know who this ugly little girl is? Yeah, I, I've got a good guess, and I bet no fucking thing's going to happen to her. Yeah. Sorry, no, I am engaged. Sorry, good good participant. Yes, I'll be. Yes, I'll be. Yes. Yeah. So Arya con- continues to work in the house of black and white. <laughs> <laughs> and it still uh, happens every time I read it. <laughs> the rapture. Ding, 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 ding. House of black and white. <laughs> um, see, it starts with this meeting of, um, well, I think priests or people high up in the order anyway. They're basically discussing who's going to, they're basically dealing out the, the jobs Who's gonna mm. give the? Who's gonna kill who? Basically, yeah. Um, they've got they've got a list, and they're saying, mm. right, you do him, you do him, and it looks like if you know the person, you can't. Um, you you, you can't often don't get given yeah that mission because it, it has to be completely impersonal. Um, so how do they get on the list in the first place? I think it's I think it's people um, come to the temple and pray, and, and you know uh, I pray for this person to be killed. Yeah, and, and I then, don't know how they decide whether or not to take it up. I, I'm not even sure they do. I think they just do it. Yeah, right. And that is kind of one of my problems with this whole sort of um, many-faced God religion thing is that because the whole point of it has been to kind of strip Arya of any sense of self mm. and any sense of kind of volition, 
Um, it's it's all of it has been purposefully mysterious and nothing's been explained. Hmm. So I don't. I'm still, you know, like her. I might as well be blind. Like her in the last chapter, I still yeah. don't know why they do what they do. And at a certain point, I just disengage because I assume you're never going to answer the question. Yeah, I think do. I think what I've understood from it is that they they kill because it's sort of just for its own. I suppose the just just killing in itself is a way of worship. Uh, so that's what they do, and and, and they, don't, yeah. they don't. Would you like to come to one of our meetings? Bloody hell, street <laughs> evangelism for them must be fucking awful. <laughs> Can I interest you in the many-faced God? Oh, interesting. I am on a spiritual journey. I'd love to hear more. So the first yeah. thing is, um, murder is an enormous part of what we do. Cool. <laughs> I'm out. Um, God bless you, though. One of them. I'm not saying which one. It's, it's all good with me. I'm. I'm not judging. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, and uh, so, but I'm not sure if they kill everybody who you know if everybody who comes to the because there there are two things on it. Some people come to the to the temple to die, and they sort of drink this poison from the from the water and then just lie down and die. Yeah. And other people seem to pray for others to be killed. Yeah, but I'm not sure they just sort of get involved and kill all of them because if they did. Surely word would get round. If you want someone killed, just go up and say a few words in this temple and next day they'll be gone. Um, but, the, yeah, there's no clue as to sort of who they choose and why. Yeah, that's true. And and they seem to be quite violently intent on not letting you find out. So well, ma- yeah, ma- you wouldn't go it's... along, though, would you? You know, even if they gave yeah. you a free cup of coffee. <laughs> maybe it's um, you have to drink the water and kill yourself to com- to get a commission, basically. So they, you know, you, you, the, the only the only people who come to the temple and actually, um, sort of, you know, contract out a hit, actually kill themselves as well. They've got to drink the water, uh, drink the Kool Aid, if you like. Yeah, um, that's true. That could yeah, be well, a, a well chosen metaphor there, I think. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so, anyway, um, Arya gets her first assassin mission. Um, so she's this sort of she's given this guy to kill. It's this. It's basically this insurance bloke who well, <laughs> who hasn't been paying out um, to people. So he, he's, he's he's basically Shylock from The Merchant of Venice, but doesn't um, uh, in terms of the job description. So he yeah. he sort of he uh, the sailors, the captains, pay him money um, as yeah. insurance, and then if they don't come back, he is supposed to pay out to um, to the family and things like that. Um, but it turns out this insurance guy isn't. Um, isn't paying out. So she's she starts by, she sort of watches him for a couple of days and tries to justify to herself why it's right to kill him. And the lesson that the kindly man's trying to teach her here is that is irrelevant. You you just kill who, it's almost like a, it's like a, um, a soldier. You just kill yeah. who you're told to kill yeah, um, yeah. and don't ask why. Um, and there's a there's clear rules as well, aren't there, in that she's talking about how she's going to do it. And one of her ideas is it involves taking out his guards as well. And the guy, and the kind of man saying, no, 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 you, know, you kill him and only him. You don't just yeah. sort of run around dealing out deaths left, right and centre because you can. It's a very specific target, you know. It's yeah. interesting. Now, it is interesting. And I realise that this is supposed to be a kind of, you know, thoughtful... Uh, reflection on uh, religion and violence and uh, power and laying it down being the only thing that allows you to kind of wield this power and all of that and and you know fair enough 
but I did feel a little bit like like the whole point of this was to kind of frustrate was to kind of like the the experience this was a religion where the primary sacrament is irritation like I just I just want to kill him no you can't you can't no no you're not allowed no 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 You've got to think about it really hard first. Oh, all right. All right. Doing my yeah. thinking. Oh, I've done enough thinking yet. Can I do some more? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's like, um, yeah, it's extra conditions that she, she's not sure why they're there. Yeah. Yeah. I'd, li- I'd, li- I'd liken it to, I'm currently playing a game called Far Cry 4. And yeah. there are some, some of those missions are like this, like, I don't know, tigers are attacking a camp. And you're like, right, okay, you've got to stop them. Okay. Use only a bow and arrow. Like, why? <laughs> yes, it is. Oh, that's brilliant. It's exactly like a video game. It's, yeah, it's supposed to be meditative. And all I'm really thinking about <laughs> is, is flipping, is, is, yeah, those missions where it's like, you know, where you're in, a, in the middle of a first person shooter and you're working all of your way through. And then you get to the mission where they go, and everyone has to stay alive. Nobody must detect you at any point during this thing. And, <laughs> The target is in the middle of the broken eggshell and broken glass expanse to the south of the city, which is which has recently merged with the world's largest floodlight supplier. So, good luck. Oh, and by the way, our religion also calls for you to wear this clown outfit with the squeaky shoes while you're doing it. Yeah. So yeah, this chapter does it does it all goes a bit Assassin's Creed, doesn't it? Brilliant. Um, she goes down to this basement area, and there are all these, basically all these faces hanging up on the walls, and it looks like they literally can't, um, take bodies down to this area and carve off the faces to use as masks. Just think yeah. about that for a minute. Well, um, so you know, <laughs> we we've gone directly from Assassin's Creed to Face Off, haven't we? Right yeah. there. I'm yeah, gonna, I was, I was leading, thinking Silence of the Lambs, actually, but yeah. Was, all right, but I, I, I like that I went for the action-adventure option and you went straight <laughs> to the sort of horrifying psychological kind of thriller. But um, oh, I, I also like the possibility, this presents us with the idea that as good as Maisie Williams is as Arya or whatever her name is at this point, consider, if you will, Nicolas Cage as Arya Stark. <laughs> How about you? Not I'd the watch. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to take his face <laughs> off. <laughs> yeah, so I uh, um, try to think of these as leather hoods, which I thought was particularly gruesome. Yeah, that's um, gruesome, isn't it? She has to close so, her eyes, and I think they, they basically chop her face off yeah. as part of this. I mean, this is... Oh, God, this makes me sure she's talking it? about it. Yeah. Well, and also, I mean, what's interesting to me about it is um, that it is very sort of um, far more graphic than they do in the TV series. And usually the TV series, they go out of their way to be, you know, to look at what's been done in the book and be like, all right, how can we add sex and death to this? Hmm. You know, how can we make this more gruesome? Um, But this outstrips the TV series by a country mile. Yeah, maybe maybe even HBO balk at slicing over yeah. a child's face. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, but um, next year when they need another way to bump up those ratings. <laughs> uh, yeah, so she gets given a new face, basically 
placed on her. And it looks like it's a combination of some kind of like magic and the physical, you know, because this wouldn't work in real life if he's yes. trying to stick a bit of skin on you. It's not going to make it look different. It was going to make it look true. horrific. But yeah. um, it looks like there's, I mean, there are elements of almost like skin changing here. There are echoes of that because when she puts the oh, face on. She she sees like how she, how this person died like she feels the hands around her throat and this angry sort of looking fierce man above her, and then um, she she gets some of the nightmares of the previous owner as the previous sort of person as well. I yeah. thought that was quite interesting that it's all sort of wrapped up in a similar way to what sort of Brand's been experiencing when he goes into other people. Yeah. Oh, that's mm. very interesting. Yeah, because it's mm. definitely. I mean, as we know, they're both sort of wargs as well, aren't they? So yeah. I mean, which so I I do kind of love this this undertone of the the Stark kids all being very gifted in this particular you know kind of warginess, weird kind of psychic gifts. But given that everybody kind of talks about them as though they're not real, or at least that they are vanishingly rare, yeah. what the hell was going on when all of these children were conceived? Like, was <laughs> there just some sort of magnet? It's like it's it's like families who like you know have like nine children and all of them have red hair. It's like, how did that even? That's just incredibly genetically unlikely. So, yeah. like, we're, 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 we're sort of Ned and Catelyn, were they shagging on top of a massive mound of, like, magical remnants <laughs> or something? <laughs> like, the opposite of The Shining. They were in a place that was particularly attuned to give their children superpowers. Like, yeah. what? I mean, I suppose that you could say not all of them are definitely wargs or skin changes. I mean... Uh, there was no evidence that Rob could do it or that Sansa could do it. Um, oh, I, I suppose, think. no, you are right there, actually, aren't you? But, but well, I mean, but Rob was never a POV character, was he? So we wouldn't know. Yeah, and I think it was, actually, I think it was hinted at with Rob, wasn't it? Like, some of the yeah. ways that his direwolf was involved in some of the battles and... Yeah. Um, you got and the feeling definitely... that even though maybe he was sort of doing an element here, we're just not talking about it because, you know, why yeah. would you in his position? Yeah, I mean, yeah, because he's the king, because he's the king, right? But mm. he happens to have a super weapon that he can control with his mind. Mm. Um, uh, and we definitely had it with Rickon, didn't we? Because when Rickon would get all, all sort of het up, his wolf would yeah. as well. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, and Sansa's was killed almost instantly. Yeah. So I, we never got a chance to find out. Um, it's true. But, but yeah, and I mean, you are right. Like, it's not actually a one-for-one one hit rate, but it is still... Fairly stunning, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, like it's high. every almost every child that Eddard Stark fathered turns out to essentially be an X Man. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, so so Arya um, is uh, carrying out her mission on the day where she's going to do it. She takes a she takes a long route, goes on a bit of a walking tour, and I was particularly excited here because we get to meet once again my favourite character in the series. It's Casso, King of the Seals. <laughs> I love I love King of the Seals. He's, he's great. Um, he doesn't do anything again, but you know, uh, yeah. she the way she I think it's quite clever how she kills this guy. So we we've heard um, from 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 her watching him. She notices that he gets the he gets paid in these different coins every day and he bites everyone to check that they're okay, check that they're, yeah. they're legitimate. So what she does is she basically robs uh or like does this uh seemingly botched attempt at robbing a uh um one of the customers and in the sort of confusion drops an extra coin into his purse 
mm. and it's a po- but I assume it's a poisoned one. So when he pays the guy and the guy bites the coin, he's poisoned and he dies. And yeah. the kindly man's delighted with this, thinks it's a great move. She gets the full apprenticeship off the back of it. Um, but that, it left mm. me thinking, for a for an order that is very particular about kill him and only him, and about the power of killing, this yeah. seems remarkably lax. This is so it could so easily end up killing someone else's. I mean, do you know somebody else might bite the coin at some point? Maybe yeah. um, it, it just seemed like uh, quite a gamble. I don't know. Did, did you think that, or do you think actually it's so unlikely that anyone else is going to end up with it? Um, yeah, I did think that it was. You're right. It's fairly slapdash, isn't it? And but I noticed in his response when when she kind of explains how she did it. Um, uh, he he kind of does this thing, which is like kind of as one professional to another who knows that we're really in it for the, for what's cool rather than actually <laughs> any of the tenets of our religion. You can always, he's so close to being like, cool. <laughs> like the old poison coin gag. Nice. <laughs> nice. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so he thinks rule of cool. He's just like, yeah, fine. Yeah, that's exactly what he's doing here. He's, he's, you know, he's the hip young vicar or something. You know. Hey, <laughs> so it's, got- it's cool, man. It's cool. <laughs> yeah, if there's going to be collateral damage, at least do it with style. If you, <laughs> otherwise, <laughs> sorry, no, not, that's not the unwritten eleventh commandment of this particular <laughs> murderous faith. Uh, yeah, so by the end of this. It, it, she gets the full apprenticeship she's in. Um, is that exciting to you? It feels like she's going to be, yeah, she's, she's going to be here a bit longer. Um, exciting such a strong word, isn't it? <laughs> I, I would say I'm not actively hoping she falls into a canal and drowns. Let's say that, like, which is... Pretty good for Arya, truth be told. <coughs> How about okay. you? Yeah, yeah. I, I'm, well, I'm thinking hopefully part of his apprenticeship now will be sending her to Westeros. That would be ideal. Um, so Hope we'll springs see. eternal, doesn't it, Matt? Yeah. Um, so that's us done for this week. Um, but of course, there is another. There is another week to come, as ever. One week follows another, and we have. <laughs> yeah, I agree like that. And I did. I did. <laughs> Uh, next up is uh, number 13. And we're going from this chapter about Cersei on the last night of her imprisonment. As far as a chapter called The Queen's Hand begins, the Dornish, the Dornish Prince was three days. So, interesting. Right. Interestinger and interestinger, as they say. <laughs> no interestinger word. and yet more interesting. <laughs> and interestinger still. <laughs> Now I'm going to go and find some more interesting things to do. Probably involving reading more of the Dance with Dragons, if I'm honest. <laughs> but uh, until next time. Until next time, Matt. Oh, hold it right there before you go. I nearly forgot to say, um, if you've got any uh, feedback for us on the uh, the podcast or on the book, we're going to yeah. save most of it till the uh, till the end of the series. But uh, you've got plenty of time to get it in. It's a shark podcast at gmail.com. That's shark podcast at gmail.com. Or you can get us on the Twitter. Um, that's at shark liver oil. Done. No way, I'm off, Dave. All right, that is. <laughs> See you later. Bye bye.